0: In this week's show we are honored to have the world-renowned scholar john dominic croissant he was born in ireland in 1934 and was educated in both ireland and the united states he received a doctorate of divinity from maynooth college in 1959 the irish national seminary he then completed two years of studying biblical language at the pontifical biblical institute in rome in 1965 croissant began two additional years of study in archaeology at the École Biblique in Jordanian, East Jerusalem. During this time, he traveled to several countries in the region, escaping just days before the outbreak of the Six-Day War of 1967. He was a member of a 13th century Roman Catholic religious order, the Servites, from 1950 to 1969, and was ordained as a priest from 1957 to 1969. After a year at St. Mary's of Lake Seminary in Mewden, Illinois, and a year at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, Sancho chose to resign his priesthood. In the fall of 1969, he joined the DePaul University faculty in Chicago and remained there until 1995. He is now a professor emeritus in its Department of Religious Studies. In this week's show, I have the displeasure to talk to our audience about a very difficult subject are calling our program A Great Evil, The Obstruction of Justice, and Ongoing abuse of Minors Within the Roman Catholic Church. It pains me to talk about the subject because there's a case here in Houston that I've been following where uh, I know some people who were attending the church where it took place. Thousands of children suffered from sexual abuse from a Catholic church for more than six decades. The... They call them allegations, I would call them the cases uh, against the different dioceses across the world, according to a report compiled by John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The report, based on church records, found that 6,700 of the 11,000 allegations were investigated and substantiated, and another 1,000 were unsubstantiated. The remaining 3,300 were not investigated because the priests involved had died by the time delegations were made. The last report is amazing because it shows how this has affected uh, individuals. It's called, I am a mad DA. Brett Ligan won't back down from investigating Conroe Priest accused of molesting children. This was printed on January 27th of this year. And is written by nicole hensley it was in the front page of the houston chronicle september 11 arrest of father manuel la rosa lopez as more than 60 local state and federal law enforcement officials descended on the archdiocese of captain houston's headquarters on november 28 looking for evidence linked to the accusations that the priest molested two young parishioners over a three-year period it's the biggest case of the alleged priest abuse in houston area in decades and with the Archdiocese poised to release the names this week of any priest since 1950s deemed credibly accused of child abuse, it also threatens to sustain the legacy of local Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, who leads the U.S. Conference of Bishops as it works to draft a response to sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Discussing the ongoing saga of the the scandal or the multiple uh, allegations against the Catholic Church throughout the world. Uh, this has been a very disturbing and confusing situation for me because if they knew that there was this stuff going on years back and they prepared themselves as being um, advocates for the poor and for the needy uh, and then being also a, a moral um, Uh, representatives of morality in the world, how come this issue hasn't been addressed? And as it's being addressed now, it seems to be done in a very kind of weak or duplicitous way. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a strong, uh, like, case against it or cleaning house or anything like that. It seems like there's just a lot of political words being thrown around but um, the the current Pope doesn't seem to be as harshly criticizing uh, what's happening uh, in relation to sex abuse as he is with uh, other issues like the environment being destroyed or uh, things like that so uh, dr. Croissant is our guest today um, I remember from uh, our previous conversations, that your bio uh, involved having been a priest in the past. So I wanted to get your first impression of of what's been happening and then kind of talk about uh, what did you see when you were there involved with the the Roman Catholic Church as as an institution, and then if if you have any uh, suggestions or concerns regarding the way that they're handling the situation.
1: Well, the first and most important thing is, it is sad beyond words. And I'm talking about primarily and first of all, and especially about those who have been abused. That is the saddest thing. And it is not, of course, just a sin. It is a crime. Secondly, from that, it is sad, of course, for the institution. But I want to put it very emphatically in that order. Now, in terms of your question... My own experience is this. At the age of eight, for example, I became an altar boy. I was living in Ireland in Nace County, Kildare. I started as an altar boy in eight, so I was very, very closely involved with priests for, for the next uh, what three years. Then at the age of 11, I went to a boarding school where all the teachers, I think, but one were priests. He was a layperson, lived off campus. All the other priests were living there. Then I went straight from an Irish boarding school run by priests. It wasn't a seminary. It was just the way boarding schools are in Ireland. And it wasn't, by the way, an elite school. That's not the way you did it. And I was in Donegal, and the small towns of Donegal couldn't have their own high schools, so there was a central boarding school. That's all it was. I went straight from that into a monastery, and I was a monk. Strictly speaking, I was a friar, a mendicant monk, for the next 19 years. And so from the age of 11 on, I was closely connected with the heart of the Roman Catholic Church. I studied for two years in, in Rome after my doctorate. And I'd like to say two things almost simultaneously, though I have to say one first. I should tell you that in all that time, from my own experience, and I mean no more than what I'm saying, I never experienced, ran into, or even heard about the horrors that were clearly going on. I don't doubt for a minute they were going on. I don't know whether people (laughs) figured I wasn't vulnerable enough for whatever reason, but I never ran into it. So I should say that first. Now, that is in no way to cast any doubt on it. It's simply to announce my own ignorance. Thank God for that, by the way. Now, the second thing is, though, I was always aware that there was a huge systemic problem at the heart of roman catholicism systemic problem not not even this person or that person but a systemic problem composed i think of three things one was the roman catholic church is intensely i'm going to say over hierarchical i have no problems whatsoever I was 26 years in the university, and in the university, of course, as a hierarchy. I have no problem with hierarchy. It is, if it, by over-hierarchy, I mean it's all from the top down, with no feedback loops from the bottom. So that was one problem. The second problem that exacerbated that was it was a totally male hierarchy, with all the problems that go with that, with male power and force and violence and all the rest of it. And the third one, (laughs) exacerbating that even more, was that it was a celibate, at least in theory, at least in theory. It was supposed to be a celibate, male, intensely hierarchical institution. Those always struck me as a recipe for disaster. And when you compound that with a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability, you start to lose all integrity. So even though I had no experience of this, I had an intense feeling that there's something awful going to happen. I didn't know what was going on. This is a recipe for disaster, I thought, in an institution, in any institution. Now, I was in Rome, living in Rome after my doctorate between 59 and 61, so I was just there before The second Vatican Council, which began 62 to 65. So myself and all of us who were there at the time thought that John Paul the 23rd was going to be able to fully reform the church in every way that was possible. Now we weren't thinking, and I wasn't thinking at that time of stopping crime going on in the church. I thought it was mostly a matter of avoiding the recipes for disaster that were clearly there, even though I didn't know how they would play out. So I was, in one sense, waiting for something that might happen. But in my own case, when I was on television in Chicago in 1968, after the papal encyclical on birth control appeared, and I said that the Pope was simply wrong. It was as simple as that. He was the Pope. And I was a Catholic, but he was wrong on that. In fact, I said, to be nice, even-handed, that Nixon was also the president who was wrong in Vietnam. So I thought that would keep everyone happy. Immediately, the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, immediately, within a day, asked my superior in my religious order to show cause why I would not be put out of the diocese. So when a dissident priest criticized theology, There was no compassion no moving around no anything it was show cause where he's not going to be dismissed so now when i hear all about this i see on the one hand there is this immediate reaction if you question authority but no reaction except moving people around if you commit crimes against children and that is what horrifies me it's not It's the, I suppose, hypocrisy, as well as the crime. It's a crime cloaked in hypocrisy.
0: But um, where does this originate? Because uh, there could be many different theories that we could come up with. With um, how can get they get away with something like this, or is it because they've invested so much in the priests that they don't want to lose their troops? So that's why they move them around. Or is it really coming from like a medieval mindset that uh, somehow God is going to work it all out and that their law is greater than than man's law?
1: It might be justified by that type of rationalization, David. But I think the major thing is that this is a top-down institution and anything that threatens the institution is far more, and by threaten, I mean even bad reputation. I'm not even talking about being (laughs) having to pay fines or something else. I'm talking about reputation. Anything that threatens the reputation of the church is far more serious than anything that might damage children or anyone else. So keeping it secret, not saying it, Moving people around so it, it kind of evaporates, hopefully, is the solution. I, it is something, I think, that's endemic in most, in most very closed societies. Protecting the institution becomes the major function almost of the institution. It's other functions which are supposed to help people be holy <laughs> get kind of forgotten, and protecting the institution becomes the primary focus of the institution. In this case, it involved sex with another institution. It might have involved money or power or something else. But in this case, you have probably, as I said, a systemic problem focusing on the fact that to be a priest, and there may be many people who would want to be a priest, as I say, female as well as man, male. But they must be celibate. So I think what that has done is perverted the sexuality of a large number of of males who might want to be priests but find themselves in an exclusively all-male celibate society for which they are not fit to be.
0: Well, tell us about your training uh, as you were going through Uh, theology school and seminary. um, Is that a subject that is addressed? Because, you know, they can throw Bible verses at people and say, well, Jesus said that some people are born for it and some people are made for it. But um, how how is the daily uh, dealing of your passions addressed? Or is it even addressed at all? Did they just tell you to pray and that your sexual needs will go away? Like, especially at that time, because... Maybe now there, there might be more modern approaches, but in the, in the late 50s and 60s, what were they telling you guys regarding your sexuality?
1: Well, of course, none, none of this actually appeared as a, it was simply no, normal prayer would take care of it. And also, the important thing was the presumption, and here's where this duality came. If you wanted to be a priest, you had to be celibate. Therefore, of course, if a person wanted to be a priest, this was the baggage, let me put it bluntly, that came along. Whether you were or were not capable of being a celibate, I have no doubt some people could be happy celibates. And in terms of some males I've met, I think it would be a public service if they were celibate as far as women are concerned. But you're told, basically, you have a vocation to be a priest. Let's say you do have. Let's say you're acutely aware that you have a call from God to be a priest. Now you're also told you have to be a celibate. That's like two things you have to be. And I have no idea why, if I could go into theology for a moment, you would presume that God would give both those gifts to the same person. Why would you, why would you imagine that? So it's by putting celibacy along with the clerical state that has created the problem. If if a person wants to lead a celibate life and wants to do it, then as far as I'm concerned, that's their business. If they want to do it and can do it. And there's no hypocrisy or perversion involved, that's their business. But if you say in order to be X you have also to be Y, you create a conflict. I, it 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 would be as As absurd, if you could think anything else, let me be absurd for a second. Okay, you want to be a pilot, but in order to be a pilot, you have to be celibate. Well, I really want to be a pilot, but I don't want to be celibate. So it it creates a conflict inside the person, deep in their own very being. And it's a recipe, as I said, for disaster. But
0: what are the mechanics? Like, uh, if if you go to confession as a priest or a friar and you tell your superior, I'm really struggling with, with uh, bad thoughts and I really want to be with a woman. Like, what do they tell you? Just don't worry about it. Or like how, how do they address those type of sexual needs?
1: Well, basically what the person will have to decide if they have a vocation and want to stay, then the presumption is that prayer is going to be able to take care of that. That's that's like something that you can decide not to do, as if it was that easy, by the way. But otherwise, of course, if the person wants to leave, the person leaves. In my own case, for example, there was 12 young men entered the novitiate. At the end of the novitiate, there were three of them there, nine were left. And of those 12, only one has remained a priest. I left the priesthood in 69. And so, of course, if you wanted to leave, you you could and would and would be told that you should. If this is what you want. Now, otherwise, the difficulty is, though, you're told for a lifetime that in order to be X, as I said, you have also to be Y. And that's what could be the systemic problem. Now, covering it up is something else. That's another whole operation. But that comes from the lack of accountability, as I said, and transparency that should immediately have made this known. I, for example, bishops, at least when I was involved in the church, every bishop had to make a visit to Rome once I think it was every five years. They call that liminal visits. And they were supposed to tell of course in the vatican everything that was going on in their diocese so i cannot imagine unless bishops were lying that the vatican did not know about this it it can't i have to either figure that the bishops from these countries decided when you go to the vatican say nothing which i don't really think so i I'm convinced that the highest levels of the church, this was known as a problem for a long time before it broke out into you know, the open, and the press and the, the law, the law came in.
0: For those not familiar with Catholicism, can you explain like the familial uh, shame and the guilt that would be associated with someone uh, going into the priesthood and then backing down because of their their own sexual needs, or uh, them being caught doing something uh, criminal or uh, deviant, and then how would their superiors react? How would their families react? Uh, is is the, that where all the secrecy comes from? And as you're uh, sharing the example of the bishops, uh, wouldn't they not want to uh, share any dirty laundry with the they're superiors, so then they can uh, get promoted and look good in the eyes of the Pope and, and the other leaders?
1: Let me take that last one first. No, it, I would say it works exactly the opposite way as, as it would, for example, in the army. If you're having a problem in your little bailiwick as a, as a bishop, then you must be somehow receiving a bad mark on your record. So there is a vested interest in a superior not not telling about a problem all the way up the, the chain of command, as it were. And that's that's nothing unique to the Roman Catholic Church. It's true of any highly hierarchical administration that, no, you don't want to tell your superior, oh, I'm having this awful problem here and my subordinates are doing all of these awful things. Well then mustn't you be somehow responsible since they're your subordinates? So maybe you have a problem too. So no, I do not think it would be necessary that they, they'd they be very glad to pass on the problem. It is, if they were responsible to what they were supposed to do, though, as I said, the purpose of those visits to the Vatican in person was to tell everything that's happening in their diocese. And that's also why, for example, if, if you were a dissident priest, and I'm just talking about my own case where it was a theological debate with the, with the, the authorities, they would just assume to get you out of there completely so you don't cause more problems. So there's a huge amount of cover-up endemic to any such an institution. It's, it just goes with the sociology, the culture of that institution. That's not to justify it. That's simply to say that you shouldn't be surprised when you find it. And if they are serious about it, then they themselves have to be aware it's not enough to say, well, we're all sinners. No, that may be true, but we're not talking about sin. We're talking about crime. I I get very nervous when I hear bishops talking about sin. In this case, it may well be a sin. That's a separate issue. It's a crime. And in the same way when you hear so much discussion about uh, protection of children. Now, nobody could be against protection of children, but actually what we want is prevention of abuse. It's not as if the children are somehow the problem. It's the prevention of abuse we want and prevention of systemic roots that cause it. I, I have not seen a serious discussion of what I would consider the systemic roots of this. How is it possible for this to happen so pervasively across the world? Originally, people said, well, it happens in America because they're, you know, you know how they are over there. They're kind of weird in any case. Or it's just publicity in America or it's sensationalism in America. But then all, all these other countries. So you almost got to say, now, you think any country where we don't hear about this, it's be- because probably the media is not doing its job or the law courts are not doing their job. You almost presume it has to be there, but we're not hearing about it or it's being covered up successfully.
0: Well, there's something controversial I want to bring up, and, and the reason that I bring it up is because a professor of mine uh, as he was thinking about the situation brought it up and he was saying that um in greek uh philosophy or i don't know if it's greek or roman or greco-roman philosophy there was this idea of uh the greatest love is the love uh between a disciple and his master um uh, is there some 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 of that involved in uh the part of 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 higher ups or people in authority uh, dominating uh, their subjects and people who are supposed to be more submissive. There's um, there's an article that came up that there in France there was cases of, of priests abusing nuns and forcing them to have abortions. Uh, would it be the same for altar boys or, or children where there's a sense of you have to adore the priest and whatever the priest says uh, needs to happen, even if it's immoral or criminal, because there's a sense of reverence and and awe at at the leadership? I, I
1: think, David, that is exactly why they got away with it for so long, that the it is not only abuse in the straightforward sense of the word, but it's an abuse of a very a very, very deeply spiritual, to use that word, relationship. I mean, it, it's liable to happen anywhere. You have, of course, a dominant adult male and subordinate children. It's possible to imagine it. But especially in this case, I, I mean, I, I don't want to talk. This is something where you should be hearing from people who've, who've experienced this and know why they might have not wanted to say anything for 20 years. Those are the people we have to listen to because they know were they afraid, were they not, not afraid so much of the person, but afraid almost that their whole world kind of shatters when this. This is a priest who's doing this. It's... Bad enough if it's an adult, but this is a priest who is supposed to be your spiritual guide, and maybe, maybe the priest may do some sorts of stories you hear about to justify it, and a young child may not know enough to say, "This is just, this is just wrong. This is just wrong. I don't care what you say." So. I, I I doubt if there is anything be beyond rationalization justifying this from Greek philosophy or anything else like that, that justifies it.
0: Well, it's just um, the concern comes with uh, the way that they've been handling it. Uh, I'm currently in Houston, and uh, Cardinal uh, Daniel Leonardo is the head of the bishops, and. There's a major case. There's two major cases in Houston. But um, up until they got raided by the FBI, they still had uh, an accused uh, pedophile as the leader of one of the churches. And all you could hear from f- from Cardinal Leonardo was like, oh, um, it was so long ago that the statute of limitations is over. And there was never this sense of outrage or, or concern that, like, I have one of my uh, workers is is being accused of a very serious crime by someone who's been traumatized for the last twenty years, and we have to nip this in the bud and and take care of it. It was more like, oh well, let's we gotta look into it, and we're not sure if it's really true or not, and and then they were even having uh, like sermons about how. We shouldn't judge people, and we shouldn't uh, think the worst of them. And then it wasn't until they were pushed by the the DA of, of Houston, who happens to be uh, a member of another church where they had a, a, a pedophile priest who ended up in jail, that any of this came to the surface. So it's just this passivity and lack of interest in protecting their parishioners and addressing... Uh, you know, people who are, um, despicable and, and who should be, you know, tried and convicted. It's just this kind of like, well, uh, we'll get to it. Or it's so long ago that we don't know what really happened. There's no evidence. And we've done shows and I've worked in, in the, uh, supporting victims of sexual assault. And, and it's, and it's the same type of rhetoric you hear from abusers. Um, uh, So that's what's the most heartbreaking, that you would expect that a religious community would not use the same type of of lingo and try to uh, discredit the victims and and dismiss the issue like it's not there.
1: And that's why this has to be handled, I think, by the justice system, not the church institution. Nothing will happen unless the state intervenes in this case that's that's the way it's, the primary responsibility is protecting the reputation of the institution now also of course certain other things may have to be done but the the amount of which uh, people were <laughs> let me be very clear i don't t- understand fully why it isn't obstruction of justice when you pay a victim to be quiet i, I know it's not but I, I've never understood that, why if, if, if a child and the parents of a child goes to the local bishop and says, this is what has happened, and the bishop is pretty certain it did happen, and then they are paid something. Now, I know you can justify it and say, that's like a fine, I don't know what you want to say. It seems to me it's obstruction of justice, even if it's not legally obstruction of justice. I would like to see some changes with regard to the law there, that when a crime is being committed, like rape, for example, I'm just talking about rape, sexual harassment, when somebody is paid to be quiet, this is somehow a crime. I I don't know enough about the law, but it seems to me it's obstruction of justice because I don't know why that isn't a bribe. So I would like to see for example certain changes there'd be no statutory limitations as there is on murder there'd be no statutory limitations for rape or for um, child abuse just to be no statutory limitations on it so if it comes up 20 years later or whatever then it has to be handled like any as if you found a murder 20 years later if it's, if it can be uh, proved and it's proved so i, I think these are serious enough that they can destroy human beings, surely not the same as a murder, I understand that, the person is gone, but if their soul is destroyed or their personality is damaged forever, as can happen in these cases, I think it makes no sense for me to have a statute of limitations. It it shouldn't be there, so that that at least can't be used. And the other problem is this. If I don't think, if, for example, priests were married, let's imagine that priests were married in the normal course of events. I'm not saying this would never happen. But I am saying that if, for example, a bishop was married and had his own children in school X, and he heard that father Y in school X was abusing I think he might think about, about it a little more personally. My kids are in that school. So it's, it's not that, that marriage would solve everything, but the normalcy of a married clergy, and for that matter also of a female clergy, would diffuse this so it wouldn't be so easy to cover up. Because it has amazed me that in all of these years, statistically, no bishop ever stood up, went public, and charged. I mean, in the criminal courts. Everywhere else you get whistleblowers, you get one person willing to stand up and and be battered by saying, I won't go with this anymore. Surely, in all the bishops in the whole world, one might have said... I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm going to go to the, the media or the, or the law or something. Otherwise, it, it would mean that the institution has contaminated the entire leadership so that they will accept the cover-up. That means that the reformation that has to come and will be forced on the hierarchy if necessary by the law courts is going to be quite devastating because they're not moving to meet it in any way that I can see.
0: But um, it, does it seem that um the reason that the the populace has not risen and demanded accountability is also part of the problem because in any other institution if you know if you work for a airline or, or for an oil company and you find out that one of the, the CEOs is, is committing crimes or abusing the workers, uh, you file uh, a complaint and then it has to be addressed or if not, there's other checks and balances. Uh, uh, the passivity that that is put on the, uh, on the congregants to not question, to not... And then also the diffusing the, the situations like um, you know, I'm angry at uh, Pope John Paul. I'm angry at Pope uh, Ratzinger because now it turns out that they were aware of all this and they could have done something about it, and there was no interest or concern. And there was, they were talking about, uh, you know, abortion. They were talking about, uh, m- you know, marriage. They're talking about all these other issues and outrage about medic. Uh, medical uh, uh Obamacare providing uh, abortions for people and things like that like the, the everything outrages them except this, and even now, when the Pope was questioned about the the nuns being abused by the priests, all he could say was, Oh well uh, it's part of the culture uh, so he's justifying that men have been abusing women for centuries so. Are they like out of touch with with reality, and are they living in another realm where only what they think is important is important, and they're not concerned about uh, what would be important for the members of their community?
1: It's one of the dangers of living in the Vatican. I mean, as I said, I lived for two years in Rome, and it's hard when you're in the Vatican with that huge amount of history. and and power and everything else there, not to really think that you can just about do anything and get away with it. I mean, it's its its own little country almost. (laughs) Well, I guess it is its own little country. And therefore, as a, shall I say, a sovereign state, as we know, sovereign states can do awful things to their members (laughs) and get away with it. And unless somebody from outside moves in, I don't even know how to stop it. It would take a huge systemic change in the Roman Catholic hierarchy and also in the Roman Catholic population not to accept this anymore. Because basically, if you go into church and you know this has been happening, you then have a responsibility of what once you know it's happening, Are you still supporting the institution? Are you not demanding the institution change? If you think this is something that just happened and now it's gone away and it's all solved, it was all, you know, just some bad people in there, then that's one way. But if it's a systemic problem, then you haven't solved it. It's like putting, you know, putting a a bandage over a sore on your arm, if it's just on the surface, that's fine. If it's a cancer, then you haven't done anything to it. And I think we have a very serious systemic evil lurking at the heart of the Roman Catholic Church. And it has to do with its lack, as I said, of accountability and transparency and therefore integrity. And it's only be a matter of Time, if this was somehow totally uh, solved, there would be something else would go wrong because there's a systemic flaw.
0: Well, can can you give us uh, your perspective on the historical implications of this? Um, You know, we all know that uh, one of the the beefs that Martin Luther had against the the Roman Catholic Church at his time was that the priests were corrupted. And from what I've seen, they mentioned that the priests had. wives and children and they went to prostitutes and they were asking for money for special favors and things like that and um america is mostly protestant and when they think of the catholic church they think about how it was corrupt at that time uh but there's been corruption throughout the centuries and most people diffuse the situation by saying oh well There's also pedophiles in the Protestant churches or in other religions, so why is it such a big deal that is happening in the Catholic Church?
1: Well, I don't know statistics. I honestly don't know if you took all the priests in the world and took the X percentage of them who are pedophiles, and let's say you got it right, would that be the same as it would be in any other similar situation, whatever that might be I'm talking about presuming that, in any case, it's the cover-up. It's not just that you found that X percent, and I don't know what what the percentage is. Supposing you found, I'm making this up now, absolutely, 10% of Roman Catholic priests were pedophiles, and supposing people said, but that's the same as you find in any other group of, I'm not going to mention any names, any other group of males who are in charge of young children. Supposing you said that. Then we would say, all right, then you expect 10%. So what are we doing about it? Are you covering it up when it happened? Is your institution vested in covering it up? Not an individual, we're not talking about, again, an individual bishop in this diocese or that diocese or a cardinal. It has to come from the top down from the Vatican that this has been covered up. That's a far more serious, I shouldn't say far more serious, because in one sense when you're dealing with kids who have been abused, I can't think of anything more serious, but you understand what I mean the cover-up is another layer of atrocity, let me put it that way. And that's what we're dealing with, whether that is systemic.
0: But how do we know that there's not other stuff going on, like a mafia-like environment where if they don't like you, they they take you down, or that if there's anything that is going to expose the church to negative publicity that you're suddenly... um, destroyed or or maligned and then going back to the times where the popes had almost a, a monarchical power where the the kings would bow down to the pope and the, and they would do what the pope said during the crusades and things like that like uh is the history of the catholic church a history of ongoing corruption or is it uh or we cannot judge it based on what happened in the past, we have to judge the modern church for its own uh, faults?
1: I think the latter. I think if you if you say, well, it's, it's ongoing corruption, then you kind of shrug your shoulders and say, so that's life. And all institutions are corrupt and all the rest of it. No, I think we have... There are things we don't let people away with. So, to be honest with you, if the corruption, if I was dealing with the corruption and all it was was that priests were getting married in the Middle Ages or something, I honestly, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I can't put that on the same level as abusing a child. I just can't. I don't want them all under the name of corruption. (laughs) One, One is simply... A different level, if I could put that word, a different level of perversion, if I could use that phrase. So I don't want to say, well, the church has always been corrupt and, you know, we're, human beings are always corrupt. I've heard this when we're all sinners and we have to be, we have to pray for these people. Yeah, we, we, sh- we should. And we should pray for them when they're in jail. And I'd be quite happy to pray for Vatican officials in jail, but in jail. And then I would want to ask again and again, what have you done to make certain that this can't happen again? If it is a systemic problem. And I think it is a systemic problem with a, as I said, going back to the beginning, an intensely hierarchical institution which is all male and which enforces celibacy, whether the person is capable of it or not. Look, all religions that I know of have certain celibate traditions. People became hermits, for example. They go out and live all by themselves in the desert or the forest. And yeah, that's, you're going to be pretty celibate out there. If people want to do that, and that is their witness that this world is not the only world you can imagine you find it in lots of different religions it's not just in roman catholicism but that's a decision that a human being makes to live a celibate life when you say if you want to be a priest you must also be a celibate that to repeat myself that's a recipe for disaster because a person may have a vocation to be a priest, but not to be a celibate, or to be a celibate and not be a priest. So by putting that condition on, you're going to guarantee that bad stuff will happen. Now, How it will be, I don't know. Whether it will be, like in the Middle Ages, a priest will have a mistress or something. I, I don't know how it will work out, but it, it can't work out because you're putting two conditions on a person. That may not both be there. The person may want one, but not the other. In other words, part of the solution here is that if the Roman Catholic hierarchy wants to keep its tradition of celibates, they may have them who want to be celibates. And if they want to stop being a celibate, they should be able to do it with no disgrace or anything else. And if they want to be a priest, they should be able to be a priest without having to be celibate. It's it's simply two different vocations, to put it bluntly. And like blackmailing God, <laughs> to put it in Roman Catholic terms, it's like blackmailing the Holy Spirit to say you have to supply two gifts to this person. We won't take
0: one. But if we go deeper into the issue, you know, you have other types of priests like the the. Uh, Orthodox priests, uh, Orthodox Christians, you have the Episcopalian priests who, who get married, if the celibacy, uh, celibacy issue is not on the table, you still have the issue that you brought up in the beginning of the, of the interview, that uh, they have too much power, and the male violence uh, aspect of it, so uh, in the in the sexual assault uh, um, supporting victims of sexual assault uh they talk about how it's a form of of violence and control to to attack someone and then to do that to a child um it's is the issue that is most troubling because now you have someone who is um innocent and and not able to defend themselves and you are forcing the person to do something uh, that is very uh, uh, damaging to to that person so so is there something twisted in the in the mind of of people who would uh, abuse their power as priests is it something that they already brought into the table because when we talk about celibacy being part of one of the part of the issues, we're saying that the environment creates, this type of uh, a lack of, of sexual fulfillment that brings about the abuse. But um, the abuse is, is more complex than that because it's an abuse that is done to, to destroy the other person in a very intimate way. And, and, and there's a, there has to be some type of gratification from that individual to, uh, to do ongoing uh, abuse of multiple people and, and for them to feel protected and untouchable. Uh, so it's, so it's a very twisted, um, sick form of violence that is committed. And then the sexual aspect component of it is that it's a, a very intimate and, and even holy, uh, kind of, um, it's, it's an affront against everything that spiritual people would, would hold dear
1: it's It comes very close to the murder of a soul, not just the rape of a body, which is there already, of course. but here you've combined the rape of a body because a child is not capable of agreeing to it, even if you in any of these cases I've ever read about, there's a very careful grooming. nobody does it just immediately. <laughs> usually the child is chosen as somebody who might be vulnerable because of a broken home or something or whatever. And then it's not just the rape of a body, which is bad enough. It's the murder of a soul in this case as well. So yes, it it probably is. I, I don't want to get comparing, comparing crimes in a way, but it's about as bad as you can imagine. When a Any kind of a spiritual master, let me put it in that general terms, any kind of a spiritual director, male or female, spiritual director abuses that with a young child, I think is about as indescribable as you could imagine. Because it's like an onslaught on the child's body and soul future and it's no wonder it sometimes takes 20 years or more for them even to want to speak about it. And you wonder what happens in all those years in between to their lives and everything else. I, I don't know why anyone hearing about it, say like a bishop, a cardinal, of the Vatican, wouldn't want to scream. That's what they should want to scream. Loud enough that everyone outside hears that Wants to know how come you're screaming.
0: Well, and that's that's what's so enraging about it because th- does does it show that, that not only are they out of touch, but like are they out of their minds to uh, to not have the empathy they would uh, they were require for the position? Like if if they were um, CEO of a company and they and they found out that that. Uh, there's kids that come and volunteer, and that one or many of the kids have been uh, abused. It, it would even be bad for business and bad for um, the morale of the of the of the company to uh, to have that happening. And it would be something that would uh, that would mobilize people to address the issue. Um, are, are they not teaching compassion? Like they can talk about the love of God and. And the need for for helping people, but is there something in the in the theology or in the, the structural understanding of of the purpose of the church that is that is lacking? It's kind of like a doctor that has no a bedside manner. Like, how can you uh, preach and 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 mobilize people to go feed the poor and and do so many uh, uh, social and and religious activities? And not be able to uh, to consider the the pain of of members of your own community.
1: Well, the danger for, for me has always been that there's a tendency to speak of justice outside, but not justice inside the church. That it can't speak very eloquently and act very eloquently in terms of of charity outside but not of justice inside and that's that's sort of part of the problem that we keep coming back to if if the primary requirement is shall I say the salvation of the institution so that not only does its reputation not get damaged if that becomes the primary purpose of the institution, self-perpetuation, then it really has no right to even exist. And that, that is the dangerous situation, that at all costs, this must not become public because it would be bad for the institution. And I don't know whether the institution then becomes equated with the hierarchy because a religion is a, is a community, first of all, and a tradition and a hierarchy or some kind of an organization, of course. That's pretty much what everything is. But the hierarchy can't be equated. <laughs> upper, let me, let me use a general word. Upper management cannot be equated with the institution. It just can't. And if upper management thinks it is the institution... It's actually protecting itself rather than protecting the institution. So that's what's happening now As we know, the institution is far more damaged than it would have been if as soon as this started, it was immediately made public instead of trying, as you said, to move, move people around and to, to, to buy off people because it must be so easy when you're dealing with an individual family who don't know that maybe this has happened to five other families. They don't talk to one another. They're told not to say anything about this because it would be bad for the, for the, for the church. And so they're paid off in plain language. It's, I want to go back to my, my statement. I would love to find out, see some way if you could not do that type of thing. If somebody has committed a crime, now we're talking about crime in this case, somebody has committed a crime you cannot simply give them x amount of money and, and ask them to please go away and keep quiet that might be able to be done in civil debates but i'm talking about a crime that's being committed not a sin but a crime it's also a sin of course then i wonder if the law should not also be changed if the church won't be changed
0: well two things and they're, and they're both very controversial so uh, please bear with me so the first thing, I heard that um, uh, there's a statistic that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, is the biggest nonprofit or organization uh, that receives donations in the U.S. So how much of this is money related? If if you have income that comes in that is not uh, taxable and it, and it uh, protects the livelihood of thousands of people and it it gets uh, funneled all the way to the Vatican and the Vatican is its own nation and it has its own monarchy and all that, how much of it is, is, is financial interest? And then the other question, and, and this is a, the most difficult one, is there something uh, like, I wouldn't say the word corrupt or twisted, but is there something um, that has been... Uh, brought about by by poor theology or very uh, permissive theology that says that God's grace will cover all kinds of sins of any kind, even the most uh, gruesome and horrible that affect uh, very vulnerable people, that suddenly they got a free out of jail card that uh, suddenly... Um, Anything can happen, and everything's all right because at the end, God will take care of it.
1: I, I'd have to admit I've never quite heard heard anyone say that, though I suppose it, it's possible. But I would simply go back to my statement, fine. If, if you want to say, could a person repent and change? Possibly. But in this case, they would be doing that from jail as far as I'm concerned they would not be doing it from a different parish. If we're dealing with a sin, that's one thing. If we're dealing with a sin, which is also a crime, let we put it that way, then crime has to go immediately and should go immediately to the police. So they should be the same type of a requirement.
0: I'm... But do they do they believe that they have some type of diplomatic immunity because they're members of of the Vatican and, and wherever they live they're actually they're missions of the Vatican or the Kingdom of God on Earth so they're untouchable uh, when it comes down to uh, like e- e- like when you confess something and they forgive you then it's gone like it's like it never happened do you do you see priests thinking in that way?
1: Well, I mean, to be honest with you, the Roman Catholic theology is pretty clear that if you go to confession, you have to confess what you have done, you have to be sincerely sorry for having done it, not planning on doing it next week and the following week, and you have to be able to say with sincerity, I'm not going to do it again. If you were say regularly, if you were, if you were, regularly going to confession and saying that you were abusing a child and next week and next week and next week. No, that's not a confession. That's simply something like a hobby or something. You, you, you could not be forgiven unless you have repented. And of course, things come up again and again. But if you were, if you were judging as a confessor that this person has no intention of doing this. Not not doing this, sorry, not doing this. Then you'd have to say this is not a confession. We're just having a chat here.
0: This is not a confession. But but let's say they let's let's say that person waited ten years to go confess. Suddenly they get a complete uh uh resolution of the issue, like there's no aspect of making amends of uh, submitting yourself to the authorities of the state, there's none of that within Catholic theology. It's just everything is handled in-house through God's grace, and then you have no responsibility to the to the the nation that you live. Is it is there?
1: I don't think that would be not very good theology because if if the person has committed a sin, you could forgive the sin, you say, but you also have committed a crime. You should go and go to the police and turn yourself in. I mean, I, Again, I want to insist on, there's a distinction, <laughs> if somebody goes to confession and says, I have a mistress, okay, in itself, that may not be a crime. If somebody goes to confession and says, I'm abusing a child, that is a crime now as a confessor your responsibility is how you handle the sin and the crime you have a dual responsibility and i don't think in any decent theology of confession you're going to say well well the, the crime has to do with, with the, the police i'm just handling the sin you're forgiven because if you're going to continue doing this this is not a confession they said this is just a, a conversation a chat you're telling me your problems. You, you, you have to have at least an honest... Let me give an example. If a person who is a drunkard goes into rehabilitation, at that time at least they have to have a sincere, I really want to get over this. Now, we know they may come back. We know it may not work. But the presumption is when you go to confession, you have a sincere purpose of amendment, that's the classical quotation from Roman Catholic theology, a sincere purpose of amendment. If you went to confession and said, if you did, but I, I, my suspicion is that most of these people managed to convince themselves that what they were doing wasn't, wasn't wrong at all. They may have thought, well, God is love and I'm just loving this child. I mean, the rationalizations you hear would make them think this wasn't even wrong. So I'm not sure that we're dealing with people who went to confession regularly and admitted they were pedophiles. I don't know how that would work.
0: I I just find it hard to believe that uh, in, in the last 100 years, the population of, of Catholics went from 266 million to 1.2, 1.2 billion, and then nowhere in there uh, that I've heard has a priest uh, ratted someone out to the to the police or uh, suggested for someone to go to the police after committing crimes. Uh, I, you know, I went through chaplain training, and that was a debate that I would have with the uh, the Episcopalian priest and a Catholic uh, young lady, that their their sense of uh, obligation and secrecy in relation to confession was higher than criminal neglect or, uh, you know, social workers, psychologists uh, are not um, allowed to to inform the authorities unless it's something that is life or death or is imminent danger Uh, if one of their clients tells them that, that if they did something in the past, it it should be left alone and the priests feel the same way. I felt that if someone came and and mentioned that they had murdered a bunch of people, that, that is the obligation of a minister to go tell the authorities for the sake of the victims and their families. So it just seems, uh, again, the word is twisted that, uh, the, the privacy of confession overrides uh the the criminality of a lot of cases in the mind of these people but like you said they could justify things in all kinds of ways but it goes back to should the bishops uh, cardinals and popes be in jail for um not only obstructing i thought uh obstructing um an investigation but uh like you said covering it up and and dismissing it like they have the power to dismiss stuff that is happening in civil society.
1: Well, if you're asking me, do I think covering up a crime is a crime? Yes. And if it goes all the way to the Vatican, then you're dealing with a conspiracy. And I bring in the the, the, the RICO problem at, at that stage. Yes, I I think from all I don't know any of this in personal. Knowledge. I just know that bishops are supposed to tell what's going on in their diocese. That's why I've always believed that the Vatican knew all about this, that none of this was, was covered up successfully inside the hierarchy. It may have been covered up successfully outside. But if you know a crime is going to be, going to be committed, if somebody came into confession and told you, "I'm I, I'm going to kill somebody next week," at that stage, that is not a confession. I mean, it might be a confession in the ordinary sense of the word, but you can't you can't come into a Roman Catholic confession and say, "I'm going to do something sinful. Please forgive me." How shall I put this? There's no advanced forgiveness. So that if somebody came in and told that they were a, ped- a pedophile and were continuing doing it, that is not a confession. It's not a valid confession. So at a certain point, you'd have to say, wait a minute, we're not dealing with the secrecy of confession at all because it's not a confession. It's the same way that if, I do, if I'm chatting with a lawyer, who just happens to be a lawyer at a bar, and I tell him some awful crime I did, he's not bound nothing by the secrecy, unless i made him my lawyer. So you, you can't really use confession to excuse any of this stuff. I mean, they may be able to rationalize it, and you can rationalize anything, but you can't really do it. So I, I don't think confession is what helped the cover-up. I think it is protecting the institution. Because bishops heard about this in ordinary reports from their... from the priests were moved around. and They were moved around because they knew something. And that was nothing to do with confession. That was simply dealing with a, a cover-up again to protect the reputation of the institution.
0: Um, last question. What's going on with the Pope uh, Francis? Uh, there was a report a couple of months ago that they were going to have a summit and address this issue. And then he's like, oh, uh, let's move it to later. Uh, is he... Uh, not showing the, the moral fortitude to address such a complex issue, or is there uh, other uh, issues related to the way that he's in, in my opinion, mishandling um, the situation?
1: Well, I, as far as I know on, on the limited question, in sometime in late February, I think it's sometime in the 20th of February, there is going to be a about a 100 bishops in Rome representing the, the bishops of the world to discuss this. But you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. It's one more discussion. I, I was, as I said, I was in Rome from 59 to 61 in postdoctoral work at the Biblical Institute. I was there when John the 23rd was there, called the the um, Vatican Council, which was supposed <laughs> to reform the church. That's what it was supposed to do. A was the word. Bring it up to date. John the 23rd was a saint. Francis may well be a saint, too. To put it bluntly, sanctity is not enough. It is... Perfectly enough for the individual. It is more than enough for John XXIII to be a saint and Francis to be a saint, if they are, and I have no reason to think they aren't. But in one sense, you almost want a slightly more ruthless reformer inside the church to make these changes. You require somebody who is appalled. And that's the word I want to use, appalled by it. Not disturbed by it or, you know, perturbed by it or worried by it or perplexed by it, but screaming appalled. I John called a council. The council went home, the curia took over again, and within five years it was all kind of quietly ignored. I left the Roman Catholic priesthood in 1969. I came back from two years in Rome, in what, in 61, as I said, and my generation of people who all got their doctorates and stuff around that time were convinced the church was going to change. And we we mostly thought there would be a married clergy. By 69, it was quite clear nothing was going to happen. I, I don't know if Francis can make the changes I don't know if he has the the passion to make the change. I I don't know.
0: Well, just a fo- follow up follow up question. Uh, do you think that the reason that this issue hasn't been addressed all the way back to Pope John Paul is because if if they were to admit that that they that there was wrongdoing or. Uh, lack of oversight or lack of interest, that that would unravel all kinds of other issues uh, and bring too much attention to other forms of corruption. So it, by acting like it's not there, they're actually diffusing or, um, you know, sweeping it under the rug. So then all these other issues might not come to the forefront.
1: Well, I... I want to slow up for the moment the use of corruption because that solves too too much. I think, yes, the reason they can't face this headlong and bring it out is to go back to my analogy. If you're looking at a sore on your arm and you know you just scratched it, that's fine. If it suddenly appears in your arm and you're worrying, is this cancer? Does this come, as it were, from the inside out and not just to scrape it because I scraped it on on something. Then you're a little bit scared. This is, as I said, a systemic problem that even if you could imagine them solving it, (laughs) I don't know what term you use for that. That's a horrible term. I don't know how you solve solve the, the damage done to human beings. They would still have to ask, how is this possible to happen? And as soon as you ask that, I'm back with my term. It's a systemic structural problem, and you'd have to be ready to take it where it goes. If you, if you find, say, well, I don't want to use any analogies because I, I don't want to do that. But if you find in any institution, all of a sudden you find, for example, that they've been cheating massively in some, in, okay, I won't, I won't use any, then you'd have to ask, how is it possible for this to happen? And to answer that is a bigger thing than simply firing all the people who are doing it. If you find a whole series of middle managers or, or higher managers were stealing and nobody found out for 20 years, and you say, oh, we fire them all. Then you have to say, well, how is it possible that we got away with this for 20 years? And then you'd have to ask huge foundational, fundamental structural problems. That's what we're avoiding at all stakes. So you're trying to ta- tamp down, restrain, solve in quotation marks this problem without getting into wider problems that could be, we, we touched on, an all-male, an over-hierarchical operation where everything is from the top down, an all-male operation, a celibate. All of those are, I consider, structure Questions that have to be raised. And it's perfectly all right to say, well, theoretically, that should be fine if everyone has chosen to be that freely. I wasn't forced to be a priest. Nobody forced me to be a priest. I, I left when I wanted to leave, and that was, that was the end of it. Um, if, if you can't get to the structure of questions, it's never going to change. And that's uh, that. How would I put this? That's not a corruption question. That's a structural question of if you take an all-male group and put them into a hierarchical position, then what tends to happen is the worst aspects of maleness tend to be exacerbated without any of the restraining power of a balanced female relationship. You shouldn't be surprised that this will go bad. How it will go bad, I don't know.
0: I agree with, with what you're saying, So, but there's, there's nothing related to the betting process. There's nothing related with uh, religious fanaticism in relation to feeling, um, you know, sent by God for a special purpose and not having any... Um, um like accountability to to man other than God it has nothing to do with um this um feeling uh empowered and and um almost um entitled to the world like if if you're told that you're a representative of Christ and that your c- congregants are your flock wouldn't that give you the right to do as you please with with the people under you? Like none of those things uh, are are part of the problem. Is it just systemic, male celibacy and and too much power handed over to them?
1: Well, you know I don't think really that theology creates it, but it may it may give you modes of defending yourself, I really don't think that somebody like Jesus, for example, who may have chosen celibacy for whatever reason and who was convinced he had a message from God, that that turns him into some kind of a monster. I really don't, don't think that. I think we've too many... Other examples of people who were convinced that they had a divine message, but it didn't give them the right to commit crime. There's also the others, of course, who are convinced that the divine message does give them the right to commit crime. But I'm I'm not convinced, I think, from what I've seen, I mean, I've seen too many good priests and good nuns in my own experience. I don't know any good bishops, because I don't know any bishops. (laughs) I I don't know any cardinals, but I'm sure there's good ones too. But I'm not convinced that that the theology creates it, unless the theology is abused. And that's that's what I mean by too hierarchical. I mean, any institution will have some kind of a governance, some upper management and all the rest, or whatever you want to call it. And unless the upper management is abusive as such, I don't find it inherently coming from an institution. So I'm not convinced that... I'm kind of thinking, I suppose, you you could... Find some priest who was able to convince himself that he had a mission from God to love children. I mean, I don't even want to. I mean, that's simply obscene, obscene theology, and that's. I, I don't know if somebody could be totally sincere. God says we should love one another and love little children, and this is the way I do it. I, I suppose people could convince themselves of anything, but. That's really a rationalization, I think, rather than a an intention of a, of the theology as such
0: well, we want to thank you for your time. I know this is a very tough subject, and it is wrapped up within a lot of layers uh, you know there's people who have lost their their faith in the institution in in Christianity or in God himself because of this there's people who are still feel very passionate about their their commitment to, to this institution no matter what and then there's people who are just baffled from the outside looking in and saying how how can this be but um, most of all we want to be able to advocate for the victims and survivors and we want to um, have an honest discussion about what could be done to protect children in the future and to create a more healthy uh, community of Of members of this group where they can, uh, you know, support one another and, and, and keep the the leadership accountable because most of all, uh, you know, as human beings, there should be a, a desire to, uh, to be there for one another. And when I see, uh, any religion, uh, missing the mark in relation to their, their basic ideals is, is very sad and, and, uh and painful to to see that happen. So uh, we want to thank you for your service, at providing clarity to these issues, for being on our show, and for uh, providing your wisdom regarding this very difficult situation. All right. Thank you, David, very much. Anytime. Bye.